Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Ebola outbreaks get a lot of attention. We'll have a conversation about what Congo's outbreak of Ebola says about the situation in that country. Film contributor Milos Stalik says there's a great film at the Cannes Film Fest. We'll hear about the South Korean film that has the critics enraptured. And on Weekend Passport, a, re- a requiem composed for the victims of the Ukrainian genocide. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Ebola outbreaks get a lot of attention. The latest outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo has killed 24 people. The first case in an urban area was called a game changer by a WHO official. We're going to talk now about Congo with Kambali Musavuli. He's a national spokesperson for Friends of the Congo, and he joins us from South Africa. Thanks for joining us, Kambali. Good to talk with you. Thank you for having me. I, you know, we've talked before about Congo, and it's a place with some deep poverty issues. It's a place with uh, political challenges. Joseph Kabila's term was up, uh, you know, a year ago, over a year ago. Uh, what When you add you know, uh, Ebola into the equation, what kind of thing are, are you thinking about? I mean, it is definitely not a news that Congolese people were expecting. Um, fortunately, though, even though it, the Ebola virus or the crisis is something to be concerned of, uh, Congolese doctors have had experience uh, dealing with uh, Ebola. I mean, it was, in, I think it was in, 19, uh, seven, in the 1970s that the Congolese doctors, scientists actually named Jean-Jacques Bouyembe, first encountered Ebola. And uh, today... He's also on the case. So he's had experiences. He has shared his knowledge with the doctors on the ground. He's even traveled when, uh, to uh, West Africa when there was a Ebola outbreak there. Um, that knowing uh, the chances of it spreading widespread, I'm still confident uh, that the doctors uh, who know the virus uh, will help in curbing it. Um, it, how does it figure with um, a, a, the po- problems in the politics of Congo? If you're trying to uh, work on a public health problem, uh, does Congo have a good infrastructure and ways of doing that? Uh, it's going to, as I mentioned, it's going to be challenging. Uh, currently, the Minister of Health is coordinating the effort with WHO. Uh, MSF has been involved now. And they are going to be trying out a vaccine uh, in the Congo with the cons- consent of the, po- of the population. Uh, it is a va- vaccine made by Merck. It has not been licensed yet, and they will try it out there. Definitely will be challenging. Uh, the issue of Ebola in the northern part of Congo is part of a larger issue also that's also happening outside of even Ebola. Um, in the Kasei region, we've had 
population who have been displaced. Uh, not long ago, I think about a month and a half ago, there was a meeting in Geneva uh, calling on international donors to come together to provide humanitarian support to the DRC, specifically because we had 2 million people at risk of uh, malnutrition, specifically because they were displaced due to ongoing fighting in the uh, center of Congo. So when we see all those different challenges that the Congolese people are facing with a government uh, which has shown over uh, the years that they've been inadequate, it makes it harder for international partners to coordinate efficiently. And this is why we, we do the work that we do. We try to mobilize to have a representative government in the URC that serves the interests of the people so that when we have crisis as uh, the Ebola crisis, uh, the Ministry of Health and uh, those engaged in the ministry will be uh, equal partners with international actors who do want to curb uh, the situation. And I think this morning we had the news that uh, we have a case that have hit uh, Bandaka, which is one of the major cities in the northern uh, part of Congo. Um, so all eyes are on Bandaka to make sure that it, it does not spread beyond that. And uh, I'm still hopeful that the doctors who have worked on the issues will be able to help uh, with that. But we still have the challenge of the government, government as I mentioned a moment ago. I'm talking with Kimbale Musavuli. He is the national spokesperson for Friends of the Congo. He's in South Africa, and we're discussing what's happening in Congo with the outbreak of Ebola there. Uh, Ebola outbreaks always get so much attention, and there's so much ink. And, of course, it's a, it's a horrific thing. Um, but you yes. mentioned the enormous number of people in Congo who are, were affected by malnutrition, and the numbers uh, are staggering. It got almost no attention. Uh, UNICEF said that 400,000 children were at risk of death last month, and uh, there wasn't a lot of attention paid to that. Uh, it is why it's important for radio shows like yours uh, to cover uh, the situation in the Congo, because these crises don't ha happen in a vacuum. Today we may talk about the displacement of population. Tomorrow we'll talk about uh, militia groups assaulting the people. And then a government that is not functioning. But at the end of the day, the struggle of the Congolese, be it a humanitarian crisis or a health crisis that happened, is that Congolese people do not have a representative government that can serve the interests of the people. If, in fact... Uh, they're able to have that type of uh, government that can serve the interests of the people, no matter the challenges, people will volunteer. I mean, I actually just named the uh, doctor. I mean, this guy since 1976, Jean-Jacques Mouyembe, has been fighting Ebola. He's been volunteering his knowledge. So we have hardworking people on the ground. Unfortunately, uh, they're not supported. So I still encourage uh, media to cover the Congo so that uh, we don't have episodic situation of the C of the DRC and people can always be on the side of the people and understand the different dynamics that's happening in the Congo. Uh, could you give us an update on what's going on with the election in Congo? Because we've talked before about Joseph Kabila and he was his term ran out in December of uh, 2016. And he's delayed elections two times. There's talk that he would delay it a third time. I saw some discussion about it being delayed until the middle of, of next year. And 
um, I've also seen things that are optimistic. Uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, the South African leader, recently said uh, things are going fine. I think there's going to be an election in Congo at the end of the year. And what do you think? So here's the backdrop, and it's very critical for the listeners to take this into context. The Democratic Republic of Congo has a constitution that gives the president of the Congo only two terms of presidency. He cannot have more than two terms. His second and final term ended on December 19, 2016. So for the five years of his last mandate, he did everything in his power to not organize elections. We are now almost two years later from 2016. There have been promises. There have been benchmarks that have not been uh, achieved. But as we look at that, and we also look at solutions sometimes that's pushed from the international community, where they will say, well, let's wait for December 2018. We believe that Kabila will organize elections. Congolese people are very clear that there will not be an election. The reason why they feel this way is because they've seen everything from the current regime that they've done everything in their power not to organize elections. So what is the what are the Congolese people calling for? What they've called for is they would like to have a transitional government where Ka- the Kabila will step down and allow the people to continue to uh, to move forward with the country. Why is it important? The moment we continue to violate the constitution of the Congo, we will never have rule of law. How do you hold a member of the Senate accountable for still being in, uh, in his seat after three years uh, beyond his mandate? The senator will say, well, the president of the Congo has overstayed uh, his power, and so on. And this trickle all the way down. And when we affect the rule of law by not uh, enforcing the Constitution, we can, we can predict much more issues within the Congo. The violence that we have seen in the Kasai region with the mass displacement, uh, the two million people who have been displaced in the Kasai region is a, in direct connection with the president of the Congo not organizing the elections and the people not recognizing the authority of the state. So that, that's actually uh, what people need to take a cut because I don't believe Americans will be okay with a U.S. president after the second term deciding to stay beyond his second term. Uh, Yet, we are okay with what's happening in the DRC today. Well, our, our, the political leaders, I mentioned Cyril Ramaphosa, seems to think things are going okay and there's going to be an election. He's a, a big regional leader. And or do mm-hmm. people in the U.S. or Europe or China, do they have any influence on this? I, I do believe that uh, the, the only legitimacy Kabila has is through the international community. Um, in the same report with uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, stating that you know, they, he believes that, that there will be election, the SADC region, the Southern African uh, community, uh, a Southern African development community, which Congo is part of, South Africa is part of, they have been waiting also for the elections. But something different has happened beyond South Africa. Botswana, a country that's also part of the SADC region, has clearly come out 
the former president of Botswana and the current president, Masisi, they have actually called for Kabila to step down. So while South Africa may have a position that may be much more favorable to allow Kabila after two years after his uh, mandate to still try to organize elections, there are others who see that as a risk for stability in the region. So this is why I share the call of what the Congolese people are actually calling for to avoid uh, much more conflict and crisis within the country. Is there any interest in Congress, in the U.S. Congress in Congo? Oh, yes. Actually, this past Wednesday, Congresswoman Bass organized a forum uh, on the Congo. I was actually, it's kind of interesting, I'm speaking to you today. Uh, Yesterday, I was in uh, Washington, D.C., but today I'm in Johannesburg. But I was at that event, and what Congresswoman Bass wanted to do was to present to a colleague in the uh, Black Caucus, uh, actually about the situation in the Congo. Uh, we had two Congress per, uh, Congress people from uh, Illinois who actually uh, attended. Bobby Rush was at the event. He, he was in the room, set for probably about an hour, listening to the discussion within Congolese and uh, uh, Congresswomen around the way forward. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we have Cong- Congresswoman uh, Bass you know, brought up a forum with the Democrats. We are not clear what the Republicans' position on the Congo is, and we hope uh, by having the forum in Congress this week, it will shine a light on the issue and push the U.S. administration in a different position. The current administration in the United States is not actually adequate in dealing with the situation in the Congo. Uh, what they have accepted from Kabila is to allow him to continue to delay elections. And that is not uh, serving the interest of the Congolese people, unfortunately. Does the Trump administration have an have a, have a issue with the Congo? Do they have a position? Their position is very unclear. Uh, the ambassador, Nikki Haley, went to the DRC uh, this year. And when she went... The reason why I, sh- I say that uh, the position of this administration has been to allow Kabila to stay is that she made a statement in DRC that the government has latched on to. She said while she was in Kinshasa that they will wait for the elections to take place in 2018. Well, uh, And that was a big mistake. The population did not expect the U.S. to come and make that statement uh, in Kinshasa. Kambali uh, Musavuli and- is the national spokesperson for Friends of the Congo. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, the situation in the DRC with Ebola and with the politics. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalik, and he is at the Cannes International Film Festival. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time to go to Milo Stalik, our film contributor at the Cannes International Film Festival. And the Cannes Film Festival is winding down, and Milos's eyes are how, Milos? They they are okay today. I just went to my favorite eyeglass place here, which is the (laughs) most most incredible optician who uh, adjusted my... uh, 
glasses, but I will say that yesterday I was really, 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 really blind. And it's hard to describe because after you watch so many films, it kind of acts not only upon on your eyes, but also on your brain. So you really have a lot of trouble processing anything, you know, and it's... It must be interesting to walk around with a bunch of people who are having trouble processing there. Yeah, well, I mean, I think most people have a lot of trouble processing just in different ways. Here, you at least understand the cause. The cause is too many films, too little sleep, you know, and too much uh, intensity uh, rather than politics. Well, let's get to the films. Uh, Carfanum, a film from Lebanon, is getting some attention. Yeah, it's a film which is Vanadin Labaki, and the concept of it, which is slim, but is central to the film, is that main character, who is a 12-year-old boy uh, named Zain, who grows up in poverty with parents who have uh, many kids who are just making do, very difficult, all the kids have to work and do something, decides to sue his parents and the basis of his lawsuit is that he's suing his parents for giving him life which they were not prepared and unable to really provide him to any degree because the situation is is that his 12 year old sister who's slightly older is married off in order to get his family money and so he runs away to another city goes on a bus runs out of money lives on the streets and then meets quite extraordinary undocumented immigrant uh, from Eritrea who has a small baby uh, whose papers have run out who owes money to the fixer who got her the, her papers and so Zain becomes the caretaker of this little boy, especially when Rahil, this undocumented immigrant, uh, disappears. And the reason she disappears is because she's arrested for not having papers. So the film really brings into focus lots of the issues that deal with refugees and with the marginalized and those people living without means, uh, people who are undocumented. And the issues like the people who are without papers, what does this mean? How do you exist as an individual? when you are living there without having permission, without having official right to work or right to live there. The rights of children, but if their parents can't provide, how the responsibility of survival is shifted onto children who are absolutely unprepared for it, and refugee children, the selling of children. I mean, all of the situation is in the context here in terms of Lebanon, but it's really applicable everywhere. And at the heart of it are these two extraordinary children, this non-actor who was found who basically is the character of Zain, who is a remarkable, remarkable young boy, and then, of course, the very, very young child that he's taking care of, and also Rahil, who's Eritrean herself as an actress, and all of them really provide a great deal of depth and humanity. So you could say very easily this is a slumdog millionaire for the 21st century, but it's also something that really speaks to the human condition at the moment at which we live. All right, that's Carfanum, and it is from a Lebanese filmmaker, and that was picked up. Somebody is uh, going to distribute it here in the Right, US? Sony Pictures Classics bought it. Uh, actually, I saw Michael Barker, who's the co-president of uh, Sony Pictures Classics yesterday, telling me about what made him choose this film and what was the turning point was a moment in the film when the older boy is so in panic and so desperate that he is going to abandon this baby, and then he decides 
then he needs to go back and he gets that baby back. But that moment, which to him was reminiscent of a great moment in Italian, Neorealist Cinema, Umberto D. of Vittorio De Sica, convinced him that this film had to be seen in America. Uh, there's another film about refugees, a very different kind of scenario, Ica, that is Kyrgyz Refugees in Moscow. What's going on with this film, Ica? Yeah, this is a film by Sergei Dvorsetsoy, who came to world attention for his beautiful film 10 years ago called Tulpan, and he's made nothing since. Here, the story is of a young woman who is from Kyrgyzstan, who is in Moscow, who has borrowed money to try to start a new life, to start a sewing shop. At the beginning of the film, we see her after she's just given birth in a hospital to a baby, and then she decides to run away. And so then we follow her trying to pay the debt to the people who lent her the money for the sewing shop, which didn't make it, and also to survive on these extreme margins of Russian society. It's not a picture that we very often see of how the Russians really treat the people who come there, who have to have permission and who have to have papers to live in Moscow or to work in Moscow, who come from the former Soviet republics. You know, extremely difficult situations, circumstances, uh, living in basements, living in attics, being exploited all the way, doing all the menial jobs. Uh, this is all focused around endless snowstorm, which is just invading Moscow. And of course, she's very sick after just having given birth. So Aika, that's the character's name, is a victim. But it's also, the whole film is also a very kind of acute lens into the state of Russian society and its inequalities. All right, that's Aika, the film about uh, Kyrgyz refugee in Moscow. Uh, we're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Milo Stalik at the Cannes International Film Festival. And coming up in a few minutes, we'll have Weekend Passport, let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. We'll be talking about a Ukrainian requiem that is in town. Uh, Milos, let's go right to the awards. The Cannes International Film Festival is winding down. They hand out a few awards at the end, and sometimes there's a clear favorite, sometimes there isn't. Is there a clear favorite this time around? Well, there's certainly a clear favorite for me, and there's a feeling that I'm not alone in. I think if there's one really great film that was shown here, it's the film called Burning uh, from South Korea by Lee Chang-dong. He won a prize here a number of years ago for a film called Poetry, which is also really, really, really uh, beautiful. This new film, Burning, is based on a short story by Murakami. Very simple story. Yongsu, who's the main character, is a delivery man who just at the beginning of the film runs into Hayemi, a girl that he knew from elementary school in their small town, which happens to be near the North Korean border. And all of these characters have, you know, various elements or problems because the film is essentially a study of character. Uh, Youngsu, who goes out with this girl, spends the night with her, falls in love with her in some ways, and then she goes off ostensibly because he's going to take care of her cat. Then she goes on vacation to Africa, which is where she's always wanted to go. She saved her money. She comes back with a different boyfriend who is very well-to-do and very wealthy. We don't quite know where his wealth comes from, although there are suggestions that it might come from selling of human organs. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the uh, subtext, you know. And what's beautiful about this film is that it's ambiguous. You know, people today 
i think, unjustifiably really rob themselves of a lot of satisfaction at having films that don't answer all the questions, that do have open endings and that have ambiguity and possibilities and things that you can fantasize into. And so that kind of engages you. And this is the nature of Burning, because it's a film that really, you see it and you say, okay, well, it's really interesting, it's really good. And then it slowly just kind of seeps under your skin and gets more and more complicated. And you keep thinking about it and returning back to it. So it stays with you. And eventually this becomes a revenge story because Young Su figures out what's going on because uh, Haimi disappears suddenly, is gone, nowhere, and the boyfriend she met in Africa is still around. And so he suspects something has gone wrong and slowly he investigates it, follows him. So it kind of reads as a thriller almost. But it's really about the internal stuff that's going on, about how people determine and live their lives. And it's just layered, uh, you know, a beautiful pace, impeccable acting. I mean, there's not a false note in it. So it's like, you know, when you encounter a great film, just like when you encounter a great poem or encounter a great book or a great piece of music, you know it, you feel it. And you feel it somewhere which is really undefinable even. I mean, it's maybe in your heart, it's in your head, it's in your genes, it's in your cells, it's in the way that you look at yourself, but it fills you up. And this is the film that does this at Cannes this year. The only film. It's a great film. And Milos Stalik is talking about Burning from South Korea. And I read the reviews, and the lead actor got great reviews. He is, he is amazing, you know. I mean, because it's not an easy character. I mean, he's not one thing. He's many things. He's a failure. He hasn't really achieved. His mother left them, left the family when she was young because she couldn't take the father. The father is an odd kind of a case because he believes in principle and is always fighting with everybody, which is why the mother left him. The mother then decides to appear one day after 16 years of being separated from him, and he has to go back and take care of the family farm. So there's all of these little complexities, and I think that's how lives really are, is that they're really made of obligations, little pieces, uh, you know, little elements, situations that we're thrown into and forced to cope with just because of the way the world is and the situations in which we find ourselves. And that's the way that Burning really portrays it, without giving us easy answers, giving us really beautiful images and a lot of suggestions. It's pretty incredible. I wanted to ask about one more film. I know you're a big fan of Matteo Garone, the Italian filmmaker who did the organized crime film Gomorrah previously, and his film Dogman there is getting a lot of attention. I mean, uh, since Garona uh, scored big with Gomorrah, which was you know, an incredible take on the Camorra in the south of Italy and the whole way that the whole system really works of corruption, he's really been kind of taken to task because each of his subsequent films has been very different from Gomorrah. I mean, everybody expected him to make another Gomorrah, you know, Gomorrah 2, Gomorrah 3, and he hasn't done that. He made a film about reality shows called Reality. He made a film about uh, Italian fairy tales called Tale of Tales, which is quite bloody and, I mean, kind of goes to the origin of the way fairy tales are. And now he kind of returns back to this crime genre in a way. Dogman is a film set in a very nondescript seaside town in Italy. It looks kind of ugly, even though it's on the sea. The main character is very short, kind of meek. He's a dog groomer who has a small shop. His name is Marcello. He's very gentle and wonderful with the dogs. He has, he's divorced. He has one daughter on whom he dotes. He goes scuba diving with her. 
And then there's the bad guy. There's the neighborhood hood who is uh, you know, loose cannon. He's a former boxer. He's a drug addict. And uh, Marcello helps procure cocaine for him. And then by chance or happenstance, Marcello gets into this deal with Simone, who is the bad guy, whom everybody in the neighborhood is afraid of, in the sense that he gives him keys to his shop because there's a jewelry shop next door. Uh, Simone breaks through, robs the jewelry store, police find out the next morning, uh, Machel, of course, is implicated and refuses to talk. And so he spends a year in jail, gets out, and of course, Simone doesn't want to have anything to do with him. The money that he promised him, if he would give him the keys to payment, he refuses to pay him. He's long ago spent the money, and so Machel decides to take revenge. So that's the kind of film that it is. It's really a film about taking identity. It returns him back to this kind of crime genre in a way and it's the right feel for it the actor is pretty terrific Marcello it's really about a a meek character who doesn't know how to stand up for himself who ultimately does all right that film is dog man and it's by Matteo Garona Italian film I gotta say the idea that you would rob the place next door and break through it seems kind of unrealistic to me because it implicates you (laughs) well I mean you know this is I mean the nice thing about it is these characters aren't geniuses you know it's not like plotting to rob Fort Knox and get away with it I mean the Simone promises him I'll clean everything up and of course you get there the next morning all the rubble's there in the big hole in the ceiling and the safe is open and it's gone. So it doesn't take a genius of a cop to figure out what went on here. And they try to pressure Marcello to talk and to admit and get off. And he thinks that he is right at keeping up his friendship in a way, even though this guy abuses him, you know, bullies him, uh, is quite mean to him at times and uses him, of course. He still feels loyalty and loyalty for him in some way. So he sees something beyond that cruelty that's on the exterior. All right, Milos, I hope you get some sun before you get back here and some kind of relaxation there at the Cannes International Film Festival. Get some sunglasses on and relax. Beautiful, beautiful day here, finally. It rained here for like three days off and on. Was, you know, there are a lot of pictures of people standing in long lines, including me, <laughs> raining with umbrellas. <laughs> so it's like a seaside of long lines with umbrellas, but the weather's turned and it's absolutely gorgeously beautiful. And it's the eyeglass man told me who, who just adjusted my glasses said, every time the festival's over, we get the most beautiful, uh, you know, weeks <laughs> of the greatest weather. <laughs> well, there, there you go, a payback. Mila, Stalik at the Cannes International Film Festival. Thanks a lot for joining us, and we'll see you when you get home. Thanks, Jerome. Cuba's National Ballet Company is in town. I'll talk with a guy who's seen their rehearsal. Nari Safavi is next with Weekend Passport. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi, is here. He's the co-founder of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange, and he has a couple of suggestions for you this week. Great to see you, Nari. Uh, Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Where are we going on the first suggestion? We're going on our first suggestion to Havana, Cuba, Palais Nacional de Cuba. Who doesn't want to go to Havana, Cuba? Exactly, exactly. Palais Nacional de Cuba is uh, doing a rare tour of North America again. They have not been in Chicago for almost two decades. And uh, they're, they're a very, very interesting and accomplished company. And they're doing their own version of the great Cervantes novel, Don Quixote as a, as an inspiration for a dance for a ballet performance, you know, with a Cuban twist, uh, taking the Cervantes story. Well, that sounds terrific. It's at the Auditorium Theater today, tomorrow, and Sunday, and you went and saw a practice. I saw a practice. It was really, really impressive. I haven't seen their interpretation, full interpretation of Don Quixote. I'm looking forward to it being performed tonight because there's going to be, at tonight's performance only, there's going to be an incredible, uh, incredible dance. Dancer, uh, playing sort of a, a prima ballerina. Uh, I think her name is Lydia Castroverde. She's going to be performing only tonight, and then the rest of the performances this weekend are going to be by another uh, prima ballerina. But I want to see her. It, she seems to be a very exciting person to observe dancing, from what I hear. And it sounds like they've really kept ballet alive in Cuba. They have an accomplished dance company. Here. They have. I think this, was, uh, this company was founded in 1948 by Alicia Alonso. And this is her interpretation of actually the Cervantes story, Don Quixote. So there is, they, they, are, they are a very accomplished group and, uh, and it goes, even goes back to the pre-communist era of Cuba. So, so, so the National Ballet of Cuba at the Auditorium Theater today, tomorrow, and Sunday. That sounds fun, doing Don Quixote, a classic tale. Definitely. Check it out this weekend only. Where are we going for our second recommendation? Our second recommendation is actually the Ukrainian Requiem for the Day of Solidarity with the Genocide Victims. And this is happening Saturday tomorrow at 7 p.m. at the Harris Theater, also in the Millennium Park area. And we have guests with us that are affiliated with the project. Father Myron Panchuk is here. He is co-organizer of the Ukrainian Requiem, and he is a board member of the Ukrainian Genocide Famine Foundation, USA. Thanks a lot for joining us, Myron. Thank you, Jerome. Uh, can you just get us up to speed on the, uh, the Ukrainian famine? A lot of people probably don't know the details of it off the top of their head. Well, the Ukrainian famine um, was orchestrated by Stalin in 1932 and 33, under the guise of collectivization and industrialization, but he targeted Ukrainian farmers that were in Ukraine and outside of Ukraine, for example, in Kuban and uh, even in Kazakhstan. Uh, the reason for that was the politics was these Ukrainian farmers were very independence-oriented. And so what happened is they would confiscate all the food. They would confiscate the grain. The grain was actually shipped to Great Britain, and that was the cause of of the starvation and deaths of millions. And it was kept quiet for a long time deliberately by Stalin, and by that's why people don't know a lot about it, but millions of people died there. Yes, millions of people died there. Gareth Jones, who was a, a Welsh journalist, actually began writing the truth. He was in Ukraine, and what happened to him... In uh, a little bit later, was he was assassinated in Manchuria. 
Yeah. So anybody that's tried to tell the truth about this uh, genocidal act, uh, they get rid of them. Even Dr. James Mace, who uh, was in Ukraine after the independence and began teaching this, um, what happened to him was that he was beaten up by a bunch of thugs and died. I'm talking with Father Myron Panchuk. He's co-organizer of the Ukrainian Requiem, which is being performed tomorrow night at the Harris Theater. He's a board member of the Ukrainian Genocide Famine Foundation USA. And with us is the conductor of the Ukrainian Requiem and the music director of the Kalamazoo Philharmonia, which is giving this Requiem its premiere. Andrew Kohler is with us. Nice to talk with you. Thanks very much for having me. And you're from a Ukrainian background and have people in your family who were affected by the Ukrainian genocide, like uh, like most everybody else who's Ukrainian. My father's family did come from central Ukraine, which was very deeply affected. And in, indeed, um, uh, one of my great-grandfathers was jailed because he tried to eat uh, some food from his own land, which was at, at one point... Uh, uh, an offense that was punishable this way and eventually died in jail. Um, that's an amazing thing. I can, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, appreciate. It, it, I mean, you know, it, there, there are many um, cases of, of starvation, of famine throughout human history, of course, and uh, each one of them is, is terrible and it's a tragedy. I think one of the things that makes this so particularly horrifying, this Holodomor, uh, this, this particular genocide, is that it was orchestrated with such um, skill and, and, and conviction, you know? I mean, it was really the full apparatus of the Soviet state at work trying to make sure that people were deliberately starved, even though there was sufficient food to feed people. Now, the piece that you're, is making its North American premiere here, the Ukrainian Requiem, uh, tell mm-hmm. us a little about it. It's a piece composed by one of Ukraine's most uh, decorated, most celebrated living composers, whose name is Yevhen Stankovich. And um, it's not a work that I knew uh, before I had some contact with the uh, Ukrainian Genocide Famine Foundation, who told me about it and said that they wanted to do this North American premiere and got me involved. And I was just blown away by the power of this work. It's it's musically arresting. I think it's something that um, manages to communicate itself immediately to an audience. But more to the point, it's such a touching act of of testament because, um, as as Father Miron was just uh, uh, describing, you know, until the Soviet Union dissolved, the official word was this never happened. There was no famine. And Ukrainians were never targeted. And this piece was written in the very year that Ukraine finally won independence. In the very year that this composer, Stankovich, could finally give voice to something that every Ukrainian knew but couldn't really say openly. And he did it in such an incredibly powerful way. It's a work for a very large orchestra and chorus and two soloists, um, one of whom uh, in our performance will also double as a narrator. The narrator is, a, is, is an American of Ukrainian descent, a wonderful opera singer named Stefan Shkafarovsky, who sung all over the world. Um, and uh, that little excerpt we just heard, that will be sung by a woman from Ukraine named Nina Matvienko. It's really wonderful that she's here with us, very special indeed, because um, when uh, the composer Yevhen Stankovich wrote this work, he wrote it with her in mind. 
she was that folk soprano voice that he envisioned, that he thought represented the heartbreak and the spirit of Ukraine for this work. So it's really a treat that we'll get to hear her and hear the composer's, you know, intended original conception of that solo delivered by her singing. Uh, He uses texts that come from both the Orthodox liturgy and mixes them with contemporary poems written by uh, uh, another living poet named um, Dimitro Pavlichko. Now, we have a clip of a rather central portion of the Ukrainian Requiem. Uh, what what are we going to hear here, Andrew? So, as I mentioned, the text comes both from the Orthodox liturgy and from these poems by Pavlichko. And we're about to hear one moment where those texts kind of abut one another directly. And it's in what I would argue is the sort of central core of this piece. Um, we hear uh, an uh, amen from the chorus, which is just sort of the tail end of a, of a prayer where they're asking for God's mercy. And then we hear a soprano that Stankovic specifies ought not to be an operatic soprano, but one who has uh, what he calls a folk voice. He wanted someone to represent the very folk essence of Ukraine. And this soprano is singing from the vantage point of a child who is about to die, who is about to starve to death, and who is singing to her mother and saying, it's too late to save me, but please be well and join me eventually in heaven. That's the Ukrainian Requiem. It will be performed. Its North American premiere is tomorrow night at the Harris Theater at 7 p.m. We're talking with the conductor Andrew Kohler and Father Myron Panchuk, co-organizer of the Ukrainian Requiem Board. And uh, thanks a lot for bringing this. What a beautiful thing. I mean, a lot of grace there. Um, Tremendous. How did you you, you find out about this work, uh, Father Myron? I found out about this work from our president, Mr. Nicholas Kocherha, who had been at the premiere of it in Kiev. And he said that he wanted to do this because it's the 85th anniversary. 
our concern here is that, you know, we want not just the public to be aware of this Ukrainian genocide famine, but all the genocides. We're going to do a piece during the performance where we're going to light candles and go through 22 or 23 different genocides, Armenian, uh, Assyrian, uh, uh, Bosnians, uh, the Rohingya. Uh, we're going to mention, of course, the Irish genocide. Very which, similar. Well, you know, the thing is, uh, in my dissertation, uh, my dissertation chair, I asked her once. I said, she's Dr. Mary Watkins on Pacifica. She said, uh, I said, well, was the Irish famine a genocide? She said, absolutely. And I said, okay, you're saying that, can you give me some evidence? She said, first of all, the British monarchy, it wasn't just a question of potatoes. Why didn't they give them other foodstuffs? People just don't live on potatoes. It was and, state policy. Yes. And so the other thing was that there were three boats that the Quakers sent to the coastline of Ireland, and it was blockaded by the British Navy. Act of genocide. You know, and today in Palestine, people will say, is it an act of genocide? Yes, it's an act of genocide. You know, and, and we go through an entire list. And so one of my goals in the foundation is to gather us together to support one, one another. It's always a question of the people in power make all the decisions. We have the example of 1862, the Dakota Indians, where uh, the government of Minnesota confiscated their lands, uh, let them get take loans of, of loan money for equipment, but they couldn't pay back their loans. So there were silos full of food, and that all rotted. Act of genocide. And those are things that we need to bring to the public, especially now with climate change and what's going to happen with food supplies, what's going to happen with water supplies. This is all, you know, it's not just this one performance at the Ukrainian thing, but it's also an example of what we need to do as a world community to make it better. Father Myron Panchuk, a co-organizer of the Ukrainian Wekram here and a board member of the Ukrainian Genocide Famine Foundation USA. Um, Andrew, I wanted to get a, sneak another question in about the work itself. It was That was such a beautiful cut that we heard. And I know it goes through different phases and that there's um, a, a kind of folk-inspired rural phase because this is a largely rural phenomenon. Um, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a work with a lot of texture. Oh, that's absolutely the case. I mean, I think that's one of the things that also uh, is so resting about it that 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 immediately got my attention is that it it inhabits it it, it inhabits several liminal spaces at once. You know, it really hovers between various worlds. There's, of course, the the religious spiritual text, and there is a text that's that's very much of this earth. It contrasts thus earthly suffering with uh, a sort of almost heavenly contemplation. There are aspects of the music where um, Stankovic kind of goes back to uh, an earlier style of music that he used to write that was what much more aggressively dissonant and avant-garde. Um, and other passages as the one we just heard, which are richly melodic and, and, and beautifully, richly tonal. Um, so I, I think there's a huge range here. There's also rage, um, uh, there's uh, defiance, um, there's acceptance, um, there's pleading, and uh, just a huge 
uh, a variety of, of emotional responses uh, to something like the Holodomor, the, the, the uh, genocide famine. Well, you can see the North American premiere of the Ukrainian Requiem at the Harris Theater tomorrow night at 7 p.m. It's a great opportunity for people to uh, see some great art and uh, acknowledge some important things. It is. Thanks a lot for joining us, Andrew Kohler. Um, he is the music director of the Kalamazoo Philharmonia, and he will conduct the North American premiere of the Ukrainian Requiem tomorrow night. And Father Myron Panchuk, he is the co-organizer of the Ukrainian Requiem and a board member of the Ukrainian Genocide Famine Foundation USA. And Nari Safavi, uh, thanks for joining us from the Pasfara Arts and Cultural Exchange, our regular Global Citizen Tour Guide for Weekend Passport. It was privileged to be here. Thank you so yes, much. Thank you, Jerome, and thank you, Worldview, because we love your program. Thank and you. There are many people do. Thanks a lot for joining us. There's a significant amount of concern about democracy and freedom of the courts in Poland. Poland's president is in Chicago over the weekend. We're going to talk about what he has to say about democracy and freedom of the courts in Poland Monday on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galli Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. And thanks to Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. It's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.